Welcome to episode 38 of the Frank Reactions podcast, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name's Tema Frank. Today's guest is Jim Rembach, who has worked in the call center industry since the 1990s and now also hosts the Fast Leader podcast, which I had the honor of being a guest on a few weeks ago. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you want to know a little bit more about me personally, I guess that's one place to find out. Anyway, in today's episode, we talk a lot about how contact centers need to be managed and and how they can influence and increase their impact within organizations. One quick jargon alert, he talks about IVR surveys, in case you aren't familiar with the term, because not everybody listening to this is already a call center person. IVR stands for Interactive Voice Response, which is, you know, your basic touch one for this, touch two for that, which we all know and hate. But as uh, Jim argues, they aren't intrinsically bad. It's more a question of how they're used. One of my favorite quotes from the interview was talking about the people who work in contact centers. And as he put it, these are human beings who are interacting with your prospects and customers. If you think of them as butts in seats, that's what you're going to get. Enjoy the interview and I will chat with you briefly at the end. Hello, Jim. And Jim, I had the honor of being on your podcast not that long ago. And uh, I will put a link to that, of course, in the show notes. But I was very intrigued when I met you at the Customer Experience Professionals Association conference to find out about your fairly varied background. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about what you've done in your career and how you've ended up where you are now? Yeah, that's a good point as far as, uh, you know, the varied piece that you talked about. And uh, there's a lot of things that go into that. Uh, Part of it just being my own personality. I always joke around that I like to chase shiny objects. Oh, I know that feeling. (laughs) Look, it's squirrel. (laughs) And and so for me, there's, you know, there's there's that emotional driver and a lot of things that I do. But originally, I started out as a uh, double major in finance, real estate, and I really wanted to grow up and be an investment banker. And and that's what I wanted Hmm. to do. When I graduated, it was a time of another recession. So there were no investment organizations that were looking to hire at that time. Uh, and it was a very different business model than what you may currently find, you know, with organizations that are selling, you know, financial uh, you know, management services and things like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I had retail background while I was in college, um, you know, trying to help fund and, and have some mad money uh, yeah. while I was in college. And so I started working for an auto parts retail organization uh, called AutoZone. Mm-hmm. And AutoZone at the time was going through some massive expansion and growth. And and so there was, you know, lots of opportunities. And so I actually went into store management for a little while and was transferred then to Memphis, Tennessee, where the corporate headquarters was uh, located mm-hmm. and was buying and selling real estate for the organization. And being newly married, moving to a new town, having no family, and being gone literally every single week hmm. uh, became a huge, huge burden on a newlywed. Yep. Uh, so I had the opportunity to uh, move into the, 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 the call center that had just started up for AutoZone at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was really um, a very forward-thinking type of operation. And what we were doing is that 
The stores that were high traffic stores had a very difficult time providing a good customer experience to both their foot traffic and their phone traffic. And so you can only imagine if you're sitting trying to get, you know, an, a, an auto part, you know, even trying to check out for that matter. Yep. And all of a sudden the phone rings and those people essentially cut in front of you because it's the phone. You right. Know, and you constantly get pushed back. And I mean, and so the service to both really was horrible. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, people who were trying to serve them were being torn between the two. Mm-hmm. And so they decided to take the telephone traffic and, and forward it via, at the time, uh, MCI's network uh, to a central you know, contact center. Yep. And so what, we were trained just like they were in the store. And all the stores were corporate-owned and linked by satellite. And we looked up their inventory and was able to put parts on hold. So people came in and said, hey, I called ahead. And then the store would actually pick their parts and help them check out. And so what happened was uh, just just to interrupt you for a sec. So this, but this was back in the nineties, right? It was. And so, but they were able to keep track of inventory at each of their stores in real time. Well, kind of. Okay. Um, they did their best. They, I mean, they, we did the best we could from the perspective of it. Did require that you had really good quantity on hand counts. Okay. So you had to make sure that. You know, if it said you had X many parts on the shelf, that you actually had those. So it was a management process, just like with anything else, to, to make sure that, you know, are my quantities on hand right? You mm-hmm. know, quantity on hand discrepancies could happen for many different reasons. But but you're right. I mean, this was back in the 90s. This is very forward thinking. Yeah. And what happened is even though the time in store went down, the average ticket went way up. That doesn't surprise me. Makes sense. Right. And, and so also over the course of time, and it was really funny, when we first started, we had you know, maybe 10, 12 people on the phone, and it grew to two centers, 800 agents in two locations, uh, one that handled a lot of the uh, uh, Spanish-speaking uh, stores down in Houston, Texas, and then one in, the one in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was, it used to be when, they, when we first started that people would call up and say, is this the store or the call center? And it's like, transfer me to the store. I don't want to talk to anybody in a call center. Huh. And over the course of time, they realized that we had such a significant pool of knowledge in the contact center. People were starting to say, is this the store or the contact center? We say, it's contact center. They say, oh, good. I'm glad I got you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I you know, had the luxury of going through that growth process uh, over a couple of years. And then, unfortunately, we had a change in senior management. And they decided to close both of those contact centers and just send the calls right back to the stores. So um, why? what was behind that decision? You know, it's really a P&L decision. Just like with many organizations, they're only looking at you know one particular side. And they were looking at the expense. And they looked at two contact centers, 800 employees, all of the, you know, support and costs and benefits and everything else that went along with it and didn't stop to pay attention to the whole, you know, average time in store, average ticket scenario. So it was wow. an easy decision. I mean, all they saw, like huh. with many centers, that this is a cost. Now, did they, do you know if they saw an impact as a result of that on their profitability? As far as after they yeah. moved everybody out? Yeah. I don't know because that's when I left. Okay, yeah. Well, obviously, yeah, you didn't have a job anymore there if they've closed the center. Well, they tried to, you know, uh, they didn't lay anybody off. I mean, what they said is you have a job in the store. And for me, I'm like, well, I've been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was a, a, another opportunity that didn't fit for me. And I said, you know what? 
um, I think it's just time for me to head on. And that's probably part of what they banked on as well. Yeah. And then I had the opportunity to move uh, to Greensboro, North Carolina, where I am now, to mm-hmm. work for a company called Deluxe Financial Services. A lot of people know them as the check printers, Deluxe Checks. Okay. And similar situation, except for them, they were using um, more of a consolidation model, um, growing into and growing three mega centers to handle all of their regional customer, you know, service operations, which was typically handled out of their printing facilities. And I think there was about 65 or 66 throughout the country. Yeah. And so needless to say, they gained some significant efficiencies going through that transition pro- uh, process. And I stayed with them for a couple of years and then moved on to a credit union that served AT&T employees and their family members, and then began doing some consulting work. And uh, ultimately, after that, I started working with a company called Customer Relationship Metrics, which is where I work now. Uh, And what we do is we really create performance management uh, solutions or services using post-call IVR surveys and contact centers. So what it is, it's VOC scorecards for contact center agent performance management. It's really taking the feedback to a very different level, uh, and actually including it as part of their performance management process. So, so um, okay, just just to interrupt for people who uh, aren't customer experience folks already, VOC obviously is voice of the customer. Um, so I, I'm curious about surveys because, of course, almost every call center now seems to have this option where they're encouraging people to do post-call surveys. What about survey fatigue? Have you seen that there's been a drop-off in the numbers of people who are willing to complete those? You know, I would say that there's, oftentimes when I find that there's fatigue and dropout, it's because of really the program design. And most of the time, it's a situation where people have just failed to do some core foundational elements to prevent those things from occurring as well as aren't willing to do other things to put in put you know other thing put other things in place to ensure that it doesn't you know drop out. Can so, you give me an example? Well, there's a couple things when you start talking about a post call survey process that you can do when you start taking into consideration the customer call flow. Um, you know, you can put reminders in place. You can have back end reminders. You can have reminders you know, for the call center staff or for the customer. It could be for the customer, and it could be for the staff. Okay. I mean, so you can utilize and leverage some of the technology you have. You can utilize your agents mm-hmm. uh, and and actually have the invitation process also be geared more towards an evaluation. Mm-hmm. So there's a very big difference between feedback, and if feedback is your mindset, really you're foolish. Why? Because it really takes, I mean, it's important to change your mindset to think about it in terms of what I've mentioned before, and that's performance management. If you start thinking of that this customer evaluation of service is something that I can use as part of my coaching, training, and development, both at the agent and the organizational level, and then build your your program with that mindset and those frameworks and that methodology, your ROI is like 300% higher. Hmm. However, it takes a level and skill uh, aspect that oftentimes people just don't invest in. Hmm. And, they, and, and I call it the Holiday Inn Express Syndrome. <laughs> I can create a survey program. I can do that. I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Uh-huh. Well, that's the whole survey monkey thing. Yeah, that's great. You know, that feedback's going to give you some information, but it won't give you a destination. And there's a very big difference. And it's like anything that we know in life is that the effort you put in 
is the reward you get out. So what do you think are the elements that would make for a good feedback process then? Well, and I'm, and and for me, I think it's really just that. It's separating out the difference between what would be feedback and performance management. Okay. Now, there are great places for feedback, and you could use it for that. But if we're starting to talk about actually to increase the level of skill with, a, with an agent who is interacting with a customer, we now get into talent development and performance management aspects that feedback cannot deliver upon. Okay. It's just not going to happen. And what what ends up happening is that organizations force it, and then they'll put it on a scorecard, and, and they'll start dinging people yeah. instead of the people. Yeah. Yeah, we and, see that with mystery shopping, too, right? Instead of using it to improve things, often it's just used to penalize people in the stores. That's exactly right. Which is sad. Well, and the reality is, is that um, that works but in the very short term. Right. And you end up alienating your top talent mm-hmm. and they go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So then what are you left with? You're left with people who are going to fight back and stay as far as your employees are concerned. Mm-hmm. Then that's what you have as part of your agent population. Right. I, I get the sense that call centers tend to be staffed with pretty high turnover populations. Is is that a correct belief or no? There are certain subsets. So even when you start thinking about contact center, the thing that always kind of joked me when I mentioned to people about what I did is they're like, oh, yeah, why are you calling me at dinner time? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> outbound versus inbound. <laughs> the whole, yeah, all that, all that outbound versus inbound, consultative versus, yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, there's just a whole gambit of different sets and subsets of right. you know, what is a contact center. Yeah. So if you start breaking that down, uh, yeah, you'll find certain areas of the industry that do have high turnover, but you'll also find certain areas of the of the industry that have very, you know, highly skilled knowledge thinkers. But you know what? They also may have high turnover too. But yeah, that doesn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to happen on the lower end either. A lot of it comes down to what we were mentioning a moment ago: is are you command controlling, enforcing, and dinging? Yeah. Or developing? Mm-hmm. I remember many years ago, it was probably 12 years ago, and I was listening to a webinar for somebody who was selling dialer and ACD systems. And this was the CEO of the company giving this webinar. And he literally said on that webinar, you know, butts in seats. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Mm -hmm. These are human beings who are interacting with your customers and prospects and and, and, and if you think about them in that way, well, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. Which is also, I guess, why a lot of the call centers that were outsourced a decade ago are no longer outsourced. A lot of them have come back because they found it was too difficult to manage it in a way where they could provide great customer experience if they were dealing with people from different cultural backgrounds or if there were significant language barriers which is not to say that you can't have great outsourced call centers, but a lot of companies, I think, were focused exclusively on the cost and not on the quality. I mean, you're exactly right. It goes back to that AutoZone decision, right? Yeah. You know, I'm only looking at this headcount and the benefits and all of the, you know, all of the support stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So now it seems to me that in contact centers, life is getting ever more complicated because more and more they're being asked to deal with phone calls, email, live chat, all these different modalities at once. And, you know, I get the sense sometimes that companies haven't really thought that through. What's your experience with that? What what do you feel works best as a way to manage those different options? Well, really, what we have to do is look at the way that the humans are actually been have been built. <laughs> okay. You know, and the and the reality is that, as far as humans are concerned, you know, there's this mystery which is you know totally false associated with multitasking. Uh huh. Yep. You know. T- talking about the the science of multitasking, well, it's a really a short subject. And the fact <laughs> is that we can't do it. Right. You know? Yep. You know, and that's, that's why we have to institute laws that say don't text and drive. Hello. <laughs> yeah. uh, unfortunately, we haven't. We don't have a law that says you know don't try to handle five chat sessions at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, don't try to handle an email, a chat, and then a phone call. You know, in random order. I mean, but but yet the fact still remains is that focus you know, is something that is, is core to being able to be good. Right. Uh, also practice, practice is something that, that does help, you know, improve performance, but it also makes permanent, right? I remember this heated discussion about a decade ago that I had with an executive vice president where he was sitting there and totally proud of the fact that they had a 100% service level, that they were answering every single one of their calls within 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And I shared with him the fact that, you know, some of his folks actually told me that they have fallen asleep on the phone because (laughs) the gap between getting phone calls was so big. And then I also Uh, shared with him that his, you know, customer evaluations of service were low because his people were not mastering their skills. hmm. So while you may think, you know, you have a great service that you're delivering because you're answering all these phone calls... You don't have a scenario where people are getting to practice what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> That's a really good point. That is a really good point. And the fact that you can get focused on the wrong metric. So, you know, the 100% call response time really wasn't the most important metric if your people don't know how to respond effectively. Absolutely right. So in his perception, that 100% service level meant that he was delivering an excellent customer service. And the fact is that he wasn't. That's interesting. Now, but also you talk about the gap between calls. So there seems to be a real optimization challenge for companies with call centers because they are expensive to run. So on the one hand, you don't want customers to have to wait too long. On the other hand, you don't want to overstaff because you most companies would not feel they can afford to have people sitting around. So how how can a company juggle that? How do they determine what's an appropriate level of staffing? I, I mean, it's a great question. And the fact is that you have to analyze it and you have to test and you have to adjust and you have to test mm-hmm. because there, there are optimal levels. But also know that, you know, human beings have limiting factors. I, I can't just keep, you know, piling upon and I can't keep, you know, dividing, you know, through multi-channel. Mm-hmm and expect to continue to experience gains. I mean, it's like a law of diminishing returns. You know, once you go past 300 individuals in your contact center, you have a law of diminishing returns in regards to efficiencies. Mm-hmm. 
and it, and 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 you you get less benefit at an increasing rate. So by the time <laughs> you're at 800 agents in one center, you have a whole lot of inefficiency just built in inherently. Interesting. Uh, same thing applies, um, you know, when running a business. And yeah. I think, you know, they say uh, Sir Richard Branson has like I don't know four or five hundred companies, but not hardly any of them are over three hundred people. Yeah, and it's and it's for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, it gets difficult to manage. There's a human limitation. It has nothing to do with systems. Yeah, I've read elsewhere the limit being about 150, but perhaps for slightly different situations. But clearly, there is an efficiency limit. So what do you think are, are some of the best strategies that you've seen company use companies use to help educate and coach and train their call center staff or their contact center staff? There was a model that was developed by Dr. Cliff Hurst, who is uh, a professor of organizational development at, uh, in, at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's referred to as, as the IQA or Impact Quality Assurance Model. Okay. And for me, when I start, started studying all of these different organizations that were you know, up on the podium receiving their awards, <laughs> essentially what they were doing was executing on this IQA model. Okay. And this IQA model looks at uh, four very important components of quality delivery. Um, you could say customer centricity. And that is they were separating out and understanding from the internal perspective some of the things that they needed to execute upon, whether they're compliance related or process or policy related. Uh, and then separating out that customer evaluation of service experience. So it was referred to as the internal quality monitoring and external quality monitoring mm-hmm. and making sure that they weren't overlapping and creating conflict with the two. Okay. And what I mean by that is most organizations or most contact centers start growing their internal evaluation process where they're you know, sitting and listening to agents and the calls uh, and they start trying or attempting to answer, well, did the customer think that that was good? Um, and so they start mind reading on the customer's behalf. Hmm. Well, when you start bringing the real customer evaluation into the service experience, move past that feedback thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you'll find that there's a lot of things that you should you should not be asking internally that your customer really should be answering for you. And so they separate out those two with IQM and EQM, and then align their metrics and all their all their metrics that they use for performance management as well as reporting. All, uh, you know, in those two categories. You know, and making sure that there's a connection. So it's, there's linkage strategies. And then feeding that into all of their coaching, training, and development activities. So while I do need to teach these folks technical skills, we know for a fact that when it comes down to building a, a, you know, customers and having them refer, that's more emotional-based. Mm-hmm. It's not that, hey, I know how to punch this and follow this policy and this procedure. That's not what it is. What it is is... You know that I do have a policy I need to follow, and then I don't tell the customer that. Well, I'm t- I'm sorry, that's a policy problem. You know, we can't do anything about that. Yeah, that's really going to get you high scores um, as far as that customer evaluation. So it's how to emotionally deliver a service experience that customers engage with, and you build rapport with, and then they therefore go and refer. So mm-hmm. it's feeding it into the EQ, the emotional intelligence, right, and that right. impact quality assurance model is something that. Um, I have seen really transform an organization from being one that is just like everyone else to one of the best. I know that with overall customer experience, it's very difficult to transform an organization. If they started off caring about customer experience, you can make it better. 
But I've spent the last three years hunting for good examples of companies that started off with crappy customer experience and have turned that around. So what you're just saying here is, at least within the call center, you think that is, in fact, possible to do? I do. There's a lot of studies that will show you that. That's one of the most important places to actually do it. After the call, maybe you can give me examples of some companies I should talk to, because that sounds like that they might fit, because if they're turning it around in the call center, then they should be turning it around elsewhere, too. I would even say that the contact center could be the instigator. Yeah. You know, like um, you know, when you were on my show, you talked about being the chief instigator, right? <laughs> yeah. I think contact centers could really be the chief instigator in regards to CX movement for organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, but oftentimes they don't feel like they have that power in the position or the ability to influence because they've constantly been beaten down about being a being a cost center. Right. Well, and what boggles my mind is that in most companies, it seems there isn't a direct linkage between what they're learning in the call center and the information that's being fed into marketing and sales. That there should be, seems to me, a pretty smooth flow of information among those and even into operations. And yet... It it seems that in a lot of companies, there's some pretty big barriers among those different areas. I had one executive of a manufacturing company uh, kind of explain that uh, in, a, in a very crude way. Okay. He said, of my peers, he goes, I was the only one that was willing to accept the responsibility of the contact center. And nobody wanted it because those people are weird. <laughs> Okay, what was weird about them? Well, when you start thinking about, uh, you know, folks that are, you know, caring, that want to help, (laughs) that want to, I mean, all of those things that, you know, are often deemed non-analytical, non-manufacturing focused, you know, I mean, you know, non-lean, if that's such a word, um, (laughs) you know, they're in the contact center. And you know what? Those people are just, I don't get them. Okay, interesting. And I, so I think there's some of that in play. Also, mm-hmm. again, from, you know, the when you start looking at hierarchies within an organization, well, you know, we're a sales organization, so sales has the power. No, we're a marketing yeah. agency, so marketing has the power. And mm-hmm. you get into some of that ego jump. It becomes a power play. So where does the contact center normally fit in a company? I, you know, I've seen it vary for a lot of organizations. That comes up through the marketing group. Um, it'll come up through the sales group. Um, I've seen it, you know, be placed within operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it varies widely. Okay. What advice would you offer to a company that is currently struggling with its contact center and wants to improve it? This IQA model, by separating out the internal needs and the external needs and using it as part of that continuous loop of developing folks to get better at what they do, I mean, to me, use the framework. Execute the system. I mean, that's really what manufacturer systems, marketing systems, sales systems, that's what they're all about. Mm -hmm. Follow the system. And I think that's a great system to follow. Right. It's interesting because I think the contact center is such a hugely important part of an organization. And yet we're still seeing it not being taken very seriously. So if you were going into an organization and talking to their senior executives about the need to invest more in their contact center, what would you say to them? While I work for a company that measures the customer experience, I know because of my operations background that really a customer experience is created from an employee experience. You, you and I have chatted yeah. about the swing from the choir on that one. So 
part of it is that they have their own drivers. They have their own needs. They have their own reasons. So for me, I have to find out from that executive team what is important to them. And then I, then I would actually draw the linkage to the contact center. Mm-hmm. I, so many times people try to force the issue. Even really, to be honest with you, that's one of the things that drove me out of operations is because I didn't know how to present that well. Mm. You know, uh, and, you know, when you start talking about an organization that says, well, hey, we're numbers driven, we're all about the numbers, and more and more, you know, say that than ever before, yep. uh, was being able to show them the numbers that had meaning and then tie it to the things that are more emotional and based. Uh, and that's how you, you know, influence them to maybe think a little bit differently. Uh, I had one client of mine probably about 10 years ago who talked about not having an IVR. We're never going to have an IVR. I don't like an IVR. Um, we're never going to put one of those in, in our organization. Mm-hmm. But feedback kept coming from their customers that they hated the wait times. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, when you start talking about, you know, that automated system, I don't want to present it and say that you need one because other people are using it. But, he, he you know, that was not something that he cared about. Right. You know, what he cared about was his customers. And in his perception and mind, it was that customers didn't like IVRs. Mm-hmm. So by taking what was important to him and showing him that his customers were really upset at the fact that he didn't have one, caused them to put one in. Then the question is, did he do it right, or was it even more irritating than the holds? <laughs> well, that yeah, that gets into a whole design issue. Yeah, you know, of course. As well, and there's also a big difference between doing a full transaction within an IVR versus you know having a front end to maybe route people more effectively. There's Absolutely. different type of solution that could be created. Yeah. You made the comment about in your earlier days not getting the presentation thing as well. And it was interesting. I was just writing an article yesterday on that very topic for the User Experience Professionals magazine and realizing that I wish I had known early in my career what I know now about the importance of blending the data with the emotion. Because, you know, heck, my first career, I was working for the Bankers Association. I thought it was all about the numbers. And it took me many, many years to realize how important it is to make the emotional connection and often to make that first and back it with the numbers so that they've got an excuse to justify doing what emotionally they know is the right thing. You're exactly right. And one of the things that I always share with folks is that you should never be the one telling the story and putting the emotion in place. Um, You need to have somebody else do that for you. And the best person and the best motivator, the best influencer is not you. It's your customer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good note to end this on. Unless, uh, are there any particular aspects that you wish I'd asked you about and I haven't? There is. Okay. Uh, One of the things that I see a lot of people lean upon that... I don't think anymore is really a benefit to an organization in the contact center. And that is something referred to as years of experience. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would beg to everybody uh, that they rethink that years of experience thing uh, and never, never lose sight of the fact that we're in a constantly evolving marketplace that just within the past three years, the power of the customer has dramatically changed. Also, when we start talking about moving the contact center from the back seat to the front seat, it is directly correlated with the ability of the leaders of the contact center to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't come from tenure. It comes from their ability to understand people and how to connect with them and the levers of the organization. 
and just some of the things that we talked about, knowing yeah. how to use data, how to leverage data, how yeah. to exploit data, uh, all for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, Jim. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. And uh, if you want to give a little plug for your podcast as well, what's the name of it and where can people find it? You can find it at fastleader.net. Uh, and Tema, I, I really enjoyed having you on the show a few weeks back. And some of the things that we even talked about here is like, you know, I wish I knew you know, that <laughs> I know now. Yeah. That's a lot of the things that we cover on the Fast Leader Show. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned. So please come on over and listen. Okay, great. Thanks very much for your time, Jim. Thank you. A few things that I took away from this interview. One is that your contact center should have a voice at the table. But in order to get one, you need to really understand what motivates your senior executives and figure out how you can tie the contact center into that. Very much like customer experience overall, you need to understand the motivations of the different people within your organization and figure out how you can demonstrate to them that your part of the organization can play an important part in helping them reach their goals. The second point is that while it is important to get feedback, or he doesn't like the term feedback, but to get customer reactions to whether or not they're satisfied with how your contact center agents are handling things, you need to use that feedback for developing people in a positive way, not simply as punishment. If all you're doing is using it to whack people over the head, you're going to end up with a demoralized workforce and lousy customer experiences and a high turnover rate. And the third point that I think really is worth noting, and we see it more and more now, as contact center staff are being expected to handle so many different contact types. So it's phone call, it's email, phone calls, live chat, social media, there's so much bombarding them at once. And a lot of organizations haven't really thought through the impact that has on staffing. The fact is, every time somebody has to switch from one customer to another, and even more so from one mode of contact to another, they lose effectiveness and efficiency. There's a lot of time that needs to be spent for them getting back up to speed when they switch to the next customer about, oh yeah, where were we in this conversation? It's just not very realistic in terms of how our brains work. So you need to be a little more careful about how you're structuring that. Yes, you want to optimize and be efficient, But trying to get one person to handle all the different modes at once is just not realistic unless you have a very low volume of contacts. That's all for this week. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. As always, I would love to get your feedback on the show. You can always reach me, Tema, T-E-M as in marketing A, at frankreactions.com. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, I would urge you to do so over at iTunes and or Stitcher. And please, if you're over there, do give a review for the podcast. It really helps others discover it. The other thing worth noting is that if you head on over to our website, within a day or so of releasing each episode, we also have the transcript of it available and you can download those. So if you're the sort of person who would like to sort of skim through some of the past episodes, you are welcome to do so by downloading them at frankreactions.com. That's all for today. Have a wonderful week, and I will chat with you again next week. Mm -hmm.